Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. In regard to the topic of climate change, a short parable on the words adapt and mitigate, with apologies to the author of The Three Little Pigs, whoever that might be. Because in that story, when the big bad wolf came for the smart pig, the smart pig was able to retreat to his house, which of course he had made of bricks, and he survives. He knew that the wolf was coming, and by going with bricks, he had adapted to the impact of what was at his door, which was a wolf huffing and puffing. So he survived by adapting. But what if the smart pig instead had focused more on the cause of the threat, and he had just gone outside and shot the damn wolf? Well, then he would have been mitigating the threat by directly addressing the cause. That would be mitigation. Both are important, clearly, and that is the choice that we are going to be debating tonight in this debate, whether we should be putting more of our effort into adapting to what's coming or more of our effort into mitigating the effects of what's coming. It's not all one or all the other, but where should we be putting more of the effort? What makes the most sense? What will be the trade-offs? So here's our question, yes or no, can humans adapt to climate change? So before we get started, I want to ask you to cast your first vote. We ask you to vote on the question whether humans can adapt to climate change, and then we will have you vote again after you've heard what all of the debaters have had to say. And what we want to see is how many uh, of you changed your minds and in which directions you changed your minds. To cast your pre-debate vote, go to iq2us.org, and there you will get three prompts on the vote. You can vote yes, no, or undecided, and we will keep that vote open for several more days letting us learn which side has changed the most minds during this debate. Let's meet the people who are going to debate that question. On the team arguing that the answer is no, we start with Kaveh Madani, head of the research program at United Nations University and former deputy head of Iran's Department of Environment. He is appearing here, I want to say, in his personal capacity as a scientist and a university professor, not on behalf of the UN or any government. His partner, also arguing no, Michelle Wooker, economic policy expert and founder, Gray Rhino and Company. Again, the question is, can humans adapt to climate change? Let's meet the team that says yes. First up, Matthew Kahn, Provost Professor of Economics and Spatial Sciences at the University of Southern California. And his partner, Bjorn Lomborg, President of Copenhagen Consensus Center and author of False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Ladies and gentlemen, here they are, our four debaters ready to get started. So we are going to go in three rounds, and obviously we begin with round one. And round one is comprised of opening statements by each debater in turn. Here up first, to argue yes to the question that humans can adapt to climate change is Matthew Kahn. Ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Kahn. Folks, good evening. It's great to be here. Climate change is a real concern. So why am I so optimistic about our future, despite the challenges we face? Climate scientists are making great progress right now, providing pinpoint predictions of the new risks we face, about the timing and the geography of extreme heat, fire risk, sea level rise, flooding, natural disaster risk, 
As an economist, I celebrate this Paul Revere effect. Paul Revere lived a long time ago. The, the climate scientists are the new Paul Revere, giving us this heads up about these new challenges we face. Folks, how do we respond to these new challenges we face? A fundamental idea from economics is that we're not passive victims. I, I hope there's some economists in the room tonight. I'm looking around. Oh, a few, a few. I'm married to an economist. My son is training in economics, and I want to convey just a couple of ideas from economics, which is the root source of my optimism and why I ask you to vote in favor of the recommendation tonight. Economists reject the view that we are passive victims. We argue that we have strong incentives to adapt to the very real challenges we face. I've written two books, and I've worked on the subject of the microeconomics of adapting to climate change. I'm looking around. Did anyone read Climatopolis? Ooh, tough room. Did anyone read my 2021 Yale University Press adapting to climate change book? Tough room. Well, all right, folks. Here is the Cliff Notes version of my book, my work. Three ideas I want you to take away. First. Our collective imagination and ingenuity creates a thrust of entrepreneurship to help us to create the solutions we are going to need to adapt to this challenge. I believe that the world's entrepreneurs, and there's 7.5 billion of us on this planet, as we seek solutions, this demand creates supply of this sharp entrepreneurial push. Point number two: economic growth is essential for adaptation. We don't worry about Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk of how they'll adapt. We've seen Jeff Bezos take his rocket into outer space. He has rejected me as a passenger for reasons you now understand. <laughs> for people in Bangladesh, for people in India, for poor people in the United States, we need them to grow richer so that they can protect themselves from the real threats we now face. A third reason I'm optimistic about our ability to adapt is government. Government plays an essential role, especially government which has economic growth behind it. We've learned from the Holland experience of how the Dutch have protected themselves from sea level rise with infrastructure which protected all of their people against these risks. So, folks, why am I an optimist? I'm staring at the clock ticking down. I want to tell you about some of my graduate students at the University of Southern California. They are studying adaptation in rural Bangladesh and rural India, some of the poorest parts of the world. These individuals are not passive victims facing these challenges. These rice-growing farmers have several strategies to adapt. They can move to cities. They can switch from rice farming to shrimp farming. They can switch from rice. To, to seeds that are more resilient, my students are studying the adaptation challenge as cautious optimists and are teaching me in their work. The future are young people working on these problems, and I'm betting on the young to help us to make the progress we need to make. So please vote yes on the initiative. Thank you, Matthew Kahn. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew Kahn. Our next debater will be arguing no in answer to the question: Can humans adapt to climate change? That is Michelle Walker, ladies and gentlemen. Michelle Walker. Good evening. So everybody on this stage agrees on a lot of things on the importance of ingenuity and creativity. I think. Deep down, we are all optimists; otherwise, we wouldn't be working on this.、Uh, we agree that climate change is real. It's caused by humans, and sadly, we also agree that efforts to mitigate it, to reduce greenhouse gases, over the years have been、uh, mother's rule. So, why are we even arguing? It really, as we said, comes down to mitigation. If you excuse the, the wonk speak,、uh, basically reducing greenhouse gases to prevent to prevent more need for adaptation, which, as you hear, is protecting ourselves from the effects. Of climate change, my work focuses on big, obvious, high-impact crises like climate change. They're the sorts of things that are right in front of us that we're talking about, that we know are happening. Picture a giant gray rhino charging right at you and giving you a choice of what to do.
So my work has shown me, first of all, that humans are way worse than we'd like to think at both recognizing and acting on these gray rhinos. We've got cognitive biases and perverse incentives that are really messing us up. But I've also realized that we are not condemned to ignore these things, like climate change. However, they're really two extremes of people, and some in the middle. On the one end are the people who recognize it, who do what they can, who don't need to know exactly the details, but they know that something is urgent and they deal with it. The other ones say, well, it's not that serious. Oh, yeah, we can deal with it. Oh, it's somebody else's responsibility. And what I'd like you to consider tonight is sort of where you are on that spectrum. And of course, climate change is quite daunting. And I could cite studies until I'm blue in the face and you are all asleep. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say that some of the world's leading scholars and scientists have concluded that it's quite possible for us to come to a safe point, to, to reduce global warming to a point where we can feel confident we can survive, uh, with as little as 1% of GDP each year. By comparison, the U.S. alone spent 27% of GDP and counting on COVID. Every year, we spend 7% of GDP to subsidize fossil fuels, the very things that are causing the problems. So taxpayers are paying for the subsidies, and then they're paying to clean them up. So that's, that's not quite okay. But if we were just to switch those subsidies, those funds and some of the financing that's right now going to dirty fuels to clean fuels, we could prompt one of the biggest economic and social transformations since the internet, since electricity, since the steam engine. Uh, our colleagues and us both agree that we need to, to invest in research and development. We also need to invest in installation of clean tech to bring the rest of the world who doesn't have enough electricity onto the grid, but through cleaner ways. This will reduce poverty. It will help us to be healthier and cleaner and safer. Adaptation is just basically spending money to stay in place. So what I want you to go away with tonight is, is to think about, can we afford to risk that climate change won't be as bad as expected? Can we afford to count on humans adapting as much as we need it? I think you know the answer for me is no, and I'm hoping that you all will vote no to come to the same conclusion. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michelle Wilker. So we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this question. Can humans adapt to climate change? I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's jump right back into our discussion. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. Ladies and gentlemen, Bjorn Lombard. Thank you. The question in front of you is, can humans adapt to climate change? And the overwhelming answer is yes, because we've done so in many different ways before. We're very adaptive species. We live pretty much everywhere on the planet. We live in frigid Greenland and in hot, humid Singapore. We live where hurricanes hit or where floods strike. We live in the driest of deserts or in Seattle. We live <laughs> everywhere. We live on ranges that are much grander than anything climate can throw at us. And that's because we already adapt. This is the stuff that we're really good at. We know this across a wide range of areas. So we have good studies that show that we adapt to all of the negative impacts from climate change. So both for heat waves, for droughts, for storms, and for floods, we become better and better at handling these problems. That means that the Damage costs, both in terms of dead and in terms of impact, have gone down, both for rich and for poor countries. Why? Because we adapt. But, of course, 
my esteemed opponents are going to say, sure, maybe we could adapt, but it's going to get much worse in the future. No, that's not what the models show us. So take, for instance, hurricanes. We know hurricanes are going to be more ferocious because of global warming. That's absolutely true. But because we're also more resilient, because we're also richer, because we know how to deal with that much better, the models show that we will actually see less damage in percent of GDP by the end of the century because of hurricanes. Actually, it'd be about half. And we know this across a wide range of areas is actually true. So take, for instance, the UN estimated that by the end of the century, we will be much better off as a civilization. If you take the middle scenario, the middle of the road scenario, as they call it, the average person in the world will be 450% as rich as he or she is today. That's a fantastic achievement, but that's without climate change. So what will climate change do? Well, we know, because there's lots of people who spend a lot of time looking at this, And what they found was, if you take a look at the models that underpin uh, Biden's climate administration's arguments, or if you take the only climate economist who has ever won the Nobel Prize in climate economics, they show us that, yes, climate change will mean we will be less well-off. So instead of being 450% as rich by the end of the century, we will only be 434% as rich. That's a problem. But it's not the end of the world. Actually, it's still a much, much better world. Thank you, Bjorn Lomborg. Thank you, Bjorn Lomborg. And our final debater will be answering no to the question, can humans adapt to climate change? Here is Kave Madani. Ladies and gentlemen, Kave Madani. So I'm probably one of the very few people in the opposite camp of, of tip, you know, tip, typical discussions that Bjorn gets into, who, who agrees with a lot of points he says. And that, that, that's costly for me in my community. But the reason for that is because I come from the developing world. When with a lot of different perspectives based on experience, but when it comes to conclusions, my conclusion is, is different because my field of study is different. I model complex systems. I use math to, to model the systems that involve humans and nature to advise policy, tell the decision makers what to do, how to deal with trade-offs, what, how to avoid the unintended consequences. The first thing I learn in complexity is that we don't know a lot of things. The uncertainty is huge. Not only we don't know a lot of things, but also we don't know that we don't know a lot of things. Now, how do you manage something that you don't know much about? We hear that people have been able to adapt. For a person coming from an area which is a little, maybe a few thousand years older than the United States or Europe, I tell you that there are civilizations that have gone away. We don't know about them. Historians and archaeologists find them one after another, and including some, some in Iran. There are the people who didn't adapt, who couldn't tolerate, who didn't, didn't were, were not able to, to adapt to a, 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 a long drought. And they went out, you know, their civilization was washed away. They're gone. You don't hear about those who didn't survive. This game, when you, when you, you, we can in this game, talk about the narratives that we like. The reason that we don't have a common narrative today is complexity. In a complex system, no one knows exactly what is going on. So now I can pick and choose the narratives I like, and 180 degrees are different from what we hear from our opponents, or say the, the, or, or say the things they, they say. The reason that both sides might be correct is because we don't know what's, what's happening. Within complex systems, what we need to do is to manage and navigate through complexity. Tonight is the night of managing uncertainty while valuing ethics. This is, a man, this is a decision which is related to ethics. This is a decision related to your social system and value system. Go two years back. We can argue that if all those people who got contracted COVID had died, not much could have happened to, 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 to our GDP. Still, we could make improvements. 
right? And quality of life is better right now. Social distancing, masks, staying at home, they were all mitigation measures. That could have not been needed. We would have eventually adopted, we would have eventually discovered the vaccine, and the life is, is better today than what it was before. But if you go back in time, would you make a decision of no mitigation and all going go all for adaptation? That's a question of ethics. So people die, yes. Old people would have died from COVID. They had lived a happy life, so it doesn't matter much. What you don't hear is how this statistics is different across nations. Who would suffer the most from the decisions that we are making here as the rich? I come from a place where people don't even have the bandwidth to talk and think about a lot of things that we are talking about today. So if you're responsible, you should say mitigation is also needed and the answer is no. Thank you, Kaveh Madani. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the question being debated is, can humans adapt to climate change? I want to go to the side arguing first in support of the motion and go to you, Matthew Kahn. When you said we are not passive and you believe that humans are capable of being active and smart about adaptation and doing that well, why is that not also just as true of mitigation? So the difference between adaptation and mitigation is a free rider issue. The United States right now has not passed a carbon tax. I don't know if it would pass in the room. So a distinction needs to be made. To mitigate carbon, the world... Can, can, you, can, can you, just for people who are not familiar with the concept of carbon tax, take 15 seconds on that? Higher gas taxes. How many folks vote in favor of that? <laughs> so I can't... Well, so. So, uh, so to mitigate, mitigation would be for the whole world to agree to raise the price of gasoline by two bucks a gallon. That would be a carbon tax. That would accelerate the electric vehicle push. Folks, the world has not enacted Greta Thunberg's agenda. I have worked for 25 years now on climate change adaptation because I'm so worried that the world has not solved the free rider issue that everyone hopes that everyone else will mitigate. In contrast with adaptation, to protect our families, to protect our loved ones, we have incentives to be proactive in seeking solutions to heat, fire risk, flood risk. For any of the plagues that can be named by climate scientists, we have strong incentives to seek solutions, and that creates a market incentive, the invisible hand focused on adaptation. There are lots of scientists who say different things. It's because the uncertainty is huge. The gentleman sitting next to Bjorn has done a study published in 2021. I was asked to review an earlier version of it um, by, by one of your co-authors. Tell, tell, tell us how much is the you know, loss of GDP by the end of, in, end of the century without mitigation and with mitigation. Just... So, Kaveh's right that we, I don't love predicting out to the year 2100, but we, it, it, our estimates are in line with what Bjorn presented, that we predict that at the end of the century, world, world GNP would be 6% lower than it would have been. And so, so think of yourself, if you wait 6% less, are, are you feeling thin? Of, uh, and so, so, kind of, so I'm grateful that you read the paper, but I viewed it as a, as a it's, it's rare. I, 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 you, I, you, I, I view this as <laughs> it's in line with what Bjorn presented but, a couple of minutes ago. Matthew, but, you are so grateful for every word of yours ever read by anybody. But That's Matt, very, Matt, very charming, actually. Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but if their mitigation, mitigation policies are implemented, then what is the loss? So, so I like your point, but there would be costs incurred for achieving that benefit. And but, so we have to do So what was the number analysis. you said in the paper? 1%. So if, if, mitigate, if you stand by, by the Paris Agreement, and Matt is the first author of that paper, it's 1%. Act. If you add variability within nations... The cost, the GDP loss, would be 13%. Read that paper, please. So 13% are lost. That's not my point that if you're right or Nordhaus is right, it's we are all wrong because models are wrong. Model depends on our assumptions. What we don't tell you is our assumptions. And we make all these assumptions. Go two years back. Tell me one model in the world that has projected the future of 
COVID-19 crisis correctly. Just one model. All of those models were wrong, but they were useful because they created a sense of urgency to convince the political leaders to take action. People were dying in China, Italy, in Iran. Still, we were dismissing it in, in the United States, saying that this is like a flu, this is a third world problem, this is a mismanagement problem. When it hit us, when people started dying here, then we took action. Now, you want to well, okay. gamble with the future? Let we me, can do it. Let, let me let Bjorn get into the conversation here. And, 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 and Bjorn, I'm, I'm not sure if you want to take it, this directly from, from where Kabe left it, but I'm interested in the point he made in his opening, which I think he was just now actually fundamentally referring back to, that systems are so complex that your, your, your optimism about adaptability it reflects a naivete about just how bad things could get because we just don't know. Yeah, and I'm also a little surprised about that we want to use our ability to do good policy in COVID as a, as a way to, to showcase how we should be doing it in this. I think we all agree that I think most governments came out really badly in pretty much all of this. Uh, I don't think modeling came out pretty, particularly good, but, and this is very important, what really mattered in both COVID and in what we're gonna do with climate is how resilient we are as societies. So what we found, for instance, for COVID was that it really mattered that we trust each other, that we have good information systems, that we have good understanding of what are the health parameters that we need and that we can get that implemented. What that really tells us is it's again about adaptation. And that goes to your question and, and, and really... Wait, wait, if, I, I just want to say I'd love Michelle to get into the conversation. Sure. If you want this opening, Michelle, to jump in or you can yield to Kaveh. Absolutely. Well, this, this really is about decision-making and action under uncertainty. I mean, if you, if you see smoke coming out of a house, you don't know if it's going to burn down the whole building or the temperature or all these other little details, but you know that you shouldn't run into the house unless you're a fireman with a fire hose. And there's so many situations where we've got enough of a warning that we know we need to act. And as humans, we, we tend to either be overconfident about our ability to handle something, or if it's so big and overwhelming, we just say, okay, well, someone else can deal with it. Let's just think about something else. It's, these are biases that every day get in the way of dealing with things. And no, we don't know what's going to happen. But what I'm pretty sure of is that if we want adaptation to work, we need to be doing a heck of a lot more mitigation right now. Because if we're not doing more mitigation, the odds that we're going to be able to adapt to those much higher temperature swings and extreme weather is going to be much, much lower. Does the example that Bjorn cited of... um uh, of the Dutch, of the Netherlands, having figured out how to keep the sea back as a community. Does that not blow you away as an example of adaptation that's an amazing scale against a, a very, very serious challenge and, and helps make his point that we can be really, really, really good at it when necessary? Well, you know, I've, I've used that example quite a bit in talking about gray rhino threats from, uh, you know, from, from weather. Uh, but I've also read recently that some of those systems that were built are now being revisited because they're not sure that the, something that was built for a, you know, thousand year storm is actually going to be every thousand year storm. So storms are getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So yes, we need to be doing some of that adaptation. But if the temperatures rise as much as the world's leading scientists think they are, then Netherlands is going to have to, you know, go back and, and redo its system. But, John, can I jump in? Yeah, please do, Matthew. So no piece of capital, including this building, lasts forever. We're always rebuilding housing, roads. Our knowledge increases every day. There are so many educated people in the world. The world's, more and more people are becoming educated in the developing world. If we have sufficient imagination about the challenges we face, including what Michelle just outlined, there's gonna be innovation and experimentation. We are not passive victims here. The, our opponents are trying to shift the debate to what's the optimal carbon tax. I don't what? think that, that's we what we're that? discussing You're putting tonight. words in our mouth. No. We did not we're say not. that at all. You can't do that. That's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> so Kaveh, in discussing my paper, 
talked about what is the trade-off of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, of what are the benefits and costs, and said that it passes a cost-benefit test. To an economist, that's an equivalent of of what is the right carbon tax here. No, I, I try to say that your, your narrative, scientific paper, is in contrast with... It's, is no, you're, you're, you're saying it's exactly 13... Aligned. What was the number you, you said, Bjorn? GDP loss by the end of this century. 4%. 4%. And you, you have said in your paper 13%. That's a big number to me that I, you know, I did but my postdoc in economics. But that's not an existential loss. Said, I, did I say, did I, did I use that word? You've emphasized that it is. What we're um, debating tonight is can we adapt to climate change? My point And whether GNP, so beyond, what are the numbers at the end of the century? 450% and 434%. So, so my point here was that we, we have our all narratives because we run different models. Because of the complexity in the system and a lot of assumptions we are making, our narratives are not, or have, have okay. different, I, different I, I, values. I, I, but, but the wait, point wait, wait, about wait, wait, adaptation... Be, be, before, no, no, no. <laughs> before you move on to that point, you've just made a really important point. I just want to know how it landed with your opponents. Is Kaveh right that different models can have dramatically different outcomes and you got to go back to the model. You got to look at the assumptions. Is that should that be something that we the audience builds into their understanding of how all of this research is done and how these conclusions are reached? So, in writing that paper, which Kaveh kindly cited, I actually disagreed with my co-authors of taking our historical findings from 1960 to the present and extrapolating out 80 years. So, we, he's, we, so he is right. The assumptions. So, and so and what, Matt, you were the first author of that paper. So, so first author. No, economics is alphabetical. But John, our study, <laughs> what our study was up to is asking when it's been hotter in the recent past, what has happened to economic growth? And Kaveh's right that economic growth is slower, but it's not negative. It, it, it's at the margins that Bjorn sketched. I was uncomfortable extrapolating out 82 years. FDR was our president roughly 82 years ago. Would he imagine the Tesla Zoom uh, are night to night? And so the world changes because of innovation. And so I was very uncomfortable with that extrapolation out to the year 2100. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared US. More when we return. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's return to our debate. The problem is that none of us knows how to extrapolate and talk about something that the world, when we were on it, hasn't experienced. The human species have not experienced this. Now, another thing we don't talk about is how people can suffer differently. You're saying in Bangladesh, people adapt. I manage water in Iran. There are people who lose jobs and get unemployed and migrate to cities and they don't have anything to do. Tell me who the Middle Eastern terrorists are. The farmers who lost jobs, lots of them. Owing, these are, owing, these are, you're saying owing to climate these, No, 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 I'm not saying so. I'm saying loss of jobs and unemployment can lead to this. It can okay. be a simple drought that you're not prepared for. All right, for. so Bjorn, your, your, your side did make an argument that people can move, people can change crops, uh, can, can change seeds, and that, and that migration, migration's an option. And I think your opponents are really questioning the whole migration is a is an option. I mean, it's, a, it's an exceedingly disruptive option, I think they're saying. No. And yes. I'm not arguing that, that this is about migration. I haven't even talked about migration. I'd, I'd be happy to do that. But I think I, I just want to come back to the point that I was, I, was, I was making here, because you're being told a story. First of all, there's a lot of different conversations going on here. You're being told that climate change is bad, so you need to vote no to that we should do adaptation. What? No, 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 that's not what if we said. If you want adaptation. No, <laughs> sorry. I've got to yeah. That's Actually, I've been here, too. That's really not what they're saying. I, I really not. <laughs> okay. Tell me what they're saying. I'm not sure. Well, I actually just wanted to, to go back to the, the, the Tesla. No, no, please tell me what, what it is that you're saying. What is the motion? The motion is can we adapt? adapt. Without. No, there's no what. Without, I'm sorry. The, no, no, no. But but we, just, we, <laughs> just got a minute. I just want to make a very important point. You mentioned Tesla. So you're talking about all these costs of mitigation. Well, Tesla is an example of mitigation. And all of these other innovations are things that are actually creating jobs, creating value. And so when you're calculating the cost-benefit of mitigation or adaptation, you need to look at 
Mitigation as investment is something that's going to keep paying off into the future. And adaptation, you know, you put a bunch of riprap along the shores or whatever it is that you do. You know, there certainly is resilient infrastructure that I think is really fantastic. But a lot of adaptation is basically just just scrambling to stay in place. And so the Tesla reference, I think, is really, really relevant to what we're talking about here. Bjorn. I didn't hear what you, what you were actually saying. But no, Tesla's, if you haven't noticed, we have to pay people about $10,000 across the world to buy these uh, electric cars. Norway is leading the world because they're actually giving you so much money. They, they have money because they have oil. Uh, that They are paying. So there's a choice between buying a gasoline power car that cost what it would cost here in the U.S., or an electric car that basically is free. The argument was that we live in a very uncertain world where we don't know what's up and down. Things could be really bad, so we better do something about mitigation. And my point was, well, that happens to be true for all different investments also in China and Russia and Ukraine and North Korea and all the other challenges that we're facing. But there's one thing that we know would actually work for all of these, that's adaptation. And that's why, and, and sorry, I'm, I'm just a stickler for words. I thought the question that we were talking about tonight was, can humans adapt to climate change? And the simple answer is, not only can we, but that is the way that we're going to our, safeguard ourselves. When our opponents are telling you that it could get really bad, there is no point in saying that that doesn't mean we should make sure we adapt even more. That is the way that we make sure our kids and grandkids are safe. That's the way that we can make sure. And, safe and I, in a I lot think of I ways. think they're saying that we may be in a situation where the the situation becomes beyond adaptation. Am I correct? All right. Exactly. That, so that I, a point would come where adaptation might not ever be enough. And and that you're living in the house made of so, straw and the wolf does blow. So the, the argument is is that if you only count on our smartness and don't plan ahead, minute you know investing in, in the power to adapt, investing in education, innovation, and all of these are a mitigation measure. If you don't do these things, you cannot adapt. So in the future, so counting on this is, so can the humans adapt to climate change if there is no action today? That's the answer, no, and that's what we are defending. Otherwise, I mean, why would I come here and say, as a climate change person who is pushing for climate change adaptation and, and saying that we have to take action, we say we cannot adapt, so what we are, our whole efforts, efforts are useless. All right, we're going to go to audience <laughs> questions now. I need you to really ask a question. I need it to be terse. I need it to be on point. I need it not to repeat material we've already covered. You're going to be great, right? And, 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 and I'm can really you tell, psyched. Can you tell us your, your first name or last name? My, name? my name is Ed Cook. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of Richmond, and I teach uh, decision-making under uncertainty, and you've talked about that. My question is, given that it's all very uncertain, how do we go about making a decision whether or not we're going to spend a trillion dollars, a hundred trillion, or a million trillion dollars on this problem? That was such a well-formed question. That's the model. <laughs> Who would like to take it first? Either side. Um, I'm happy to. Go for it. Well, I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, what are you getting on your return for that investment? And I think you're going to get a lot bigger return on your investment in mitigation right now, because if it's something that, 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 that's clean tech, it's going to clean the air, it's going to make energy and transport much less expensive, that there's going to address some health problems from the, the reduction in, in particulate matter in the air, and then that's going to go on into the future, and that's going to make it more possible if, for people who want to adapt. Adaptation often just stops with what you do, and then the next time the sea levels rise further, then it doesn't work anymore. So I would look at, at the total return on your investment, and mitigation is it. And Michelle is exactly right. Unfortunately, she's exactly wrong in the numbers. Uh, I mean, we know these numbers. Most of the stuff that you spend on mitigation will have very little impact far out into the future. So you're fundamentally saying, all right, let's spend an enormous amount of money. So, for instance, the, uh, 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 the Bank of America estimate that going net zero will cost us about $5 trillion a year. That's a lot of money. Of course, nobody's actually going to come up with that money. But $5 trillion a year, and yet the net benefits will only start towards the second part of the century. However, if you invest in adaptation, you can help people now. And especially, of course, when you worry about poor people, the question is, do you worry about helping poor people now, or do you worry about helping them ineffectively in 100 years when they're much richer? 
And the overwhelming estimate is that you should help them now with the things that they actually need, much of which is adaptation, but also many, many other things like not dying from tuberculosis and malaria and all these other things. So again, there is very good evidence, and I totally agree that we should look at what's the cost and the benefits, but it gives you a very different answer. We have a question uh, that came in on Slido from Jeremy. I'm not sure where you are out there, but I want to take your question. Do you support increased use of nuclear power in addition to renewables? If not, why not in the light of dangers of climate change? I feel like, I feel that that's a question more to your side, so... Just because, because I'm Iranian? <laughs> no! <laughs> See? <laughs> Don't profile me. No, well I, I get that questions at the border uh, every time I cross the border. But listen, this this is a, this you know. So I I, I you know I, I and I Michelle told you, can join this question as well. Okay. I told you that I I I, I have a lot in, in common with Bjorn when it comes to thinking. We have a lot of defective policies. We have a lot of biases. We reject a lot of things that we don't like or have a bad memory of, or or we we rush into making some big decisions. Um, now, when it comes to nuclear, at least our studies show that when you consider their different footprints, water footprint, carbon footprint, land footprint, and cost. And by the way, carbon is, should not be the only driver of making decisions. There are also other footprints to think about. Nuclear can be a promising source of energy. Now, this is a scary thing to say because of the history of nuclear and what we have seen so far in different parts of the world. So what we have seen so far is that nuclear energy can be abused in certain ways. You know, I, I think if you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. And, 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 then, and then the issue of waste and ethical responsibilities and so on. So when it comes to innovation and, 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 and new technology and so on, there, are, there is a new generation of nuclear energy that it, at the micro scale that is being promising. Still, we don't know okay, enough about it. Okay, let me just take that to the other side. So uh, fundamentally, a nuclear is not dangerous but it is very costly. And so in most, uh, most places, uh, new third-generation nuclear is not particularly a good idea. We see that in, uh, in uh, the UK and Finland, many other places become incredibly expensive. But don't, don't, don't shut down existing nuclear power plants. You've just paid for them. You've already commissioned, uh, you already committed yourself to paying the decommissioning cost. When they're running, they're incredibly cheap. So it's very, very stupid to shut down like uh, the US and Germany has been doing. Please don't do that. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared US debate, where our resolution is, can humans adapt to climate change? And that's the question we're asking. And here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater. First up to argue the yes position. Once again, Matthew Kahn. Folks, thank you. I have had a great time. And I think that we've made a strong case tonight to our strong ability to make progress. We have empirical benchmarks of our progress in adapting to the challenge. I don't predict out to the year 2100. My co-authors wanted to, uh, but I refuse to. I am very optimistic that we, that we will make great progress relative to what we've achieved in the past. Two final ideas. How will California adapt to climate change? We will pinpoint where is the areas without fire risk and flood risk. We will upzone there. We will use insurance pricing to nudge people to higher ground where they will be safer. How will India adapt to climate change? Folks, urbanization and moving to cities such as Richmond, such as New Delhi, is a way to adapt because urbanization and education go hand in hand. Farmers face a challenge in adapting relative to urbanites. And so in thinking of your children's future, I am optimistic about my son's future because of human ingenuity. And so I ask you to support the proposal tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew Kahn. And here... To argue for the last time on the no side, Michelle Wooker. So do we notice climate change right now? I live in Chicago. I have a view of Lake Michigan from my office window. The lake actually laps up against my building. And at one point in the last several years, the lake was up 40 feet over the previous record. And I noticed this because when I moved there eight years ago, I had an idiot puppy who would run around barking her fool head off on the dog beach 
which is now under 20-something-odd feet of water. This is what you might call a first-world problem. And it really is. And that's actually my point, is that as we were talking about, developing countries are most at risk from climate change. They are the ones who will benefit most from mitigation measures. And the mitigation measures in those countries, as they, they grow and need more energy, will yield a huge, huge benefit. The questions we're asking tonight are related to that. Are we okay with living in such a way that the rich countries can do what they need to adapt, but everyone else in the world can't? If you think that the ethical and practical answer to those questions is no, then I urge you to vote no on the resolution tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle Wooker. And one more word from the yes side, Bjorn Lomborg, ladies and gentlemen, Bjorn Lomborg. Thank you. I feel like our our opponents here are trying to sort of switch the conversation to say, do you want to be good people or do you want to vote yes? Right? They're they're basically trying to shame you into saying, no, you should vote no because we shouldn't adapt. We should spend lots and lots of money on cutting carbon emissions. Let's just think about that for a second. How successful have we been so far? Well, in a surprisingly underreported uh, 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 report from the UN just before COVID hit, uh, the uh, uh, UN Environment Program estimated that the net impact of all climate policies since 2005 has been zero. They said they could not tell the difference between the world that we actually live in and the world that would not have cared about climate change since 2005. So my honored opponents are basically suggesting to you that you should skip what the question says and just vote no, because it doesn't feel like we're doing the right thing. I would suggest to you humbly that you should answer the question and that we should do the smart stuff and that we should actually do the stuff that will not only help rich people, but that is also what poor people both can afford and will help them a lot more as they're poor. Thank you. Thank you, Bjorn Lombard. And our final statement will be arguing the no answer to the question here is Kaveh Medani. So I think the two of us are here to say that mitigation is needed in addition to adaptation, and you cannot count on our, our smartness because we might get everything wrong. Now, if we, we are thinking that we don't know a lot, we become less arrogant and we try to understand what is going on. And as Bjorn is saying correctly, we have to come up with better ways of implementing policies and design, designing them. Current policies are, are, a lot of them are defective. They might even have the unintended consequences that make things worse. But that doesn't mean that we should give up on mitigations because in the future we get smart and we will find the solution. Um, and, and let me say this loudly, that climate change is only one of the byproducts of unsustainable development. Only one of them. There are lots of other things that we need to address. And, and if we... And investing in poverty alleviation, and uh, as a person coming from the developing world, and I understand this is very much needed, you know, investing in, 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 in fixing this issue, improving health, and so many other things. All of these are indeed mitigation measures to increase the capacity of those societies to adapt. So if you want to stick to ethics and think about the justice and think about all of the world, not we as in the people in this room, but as the, all the humans in this planet, on this planet, please vote no. All right, that concludes round three, and that also concludes the argumentation section of this debate. And now it's time to learn which side has changed the most minds. We're going to ask you to vote for the second time by going to iq2us.org to cast your second vote. And there you will find the instructions and the prompts to vote yes, no, or undecided. All right, it's all in. I've been, um, I've been sent the results. So on the first vote, 61% of you said yes to the question, can humans adapt to climate change? 23 said no. 16% were undecided. 
On the second vote, the team that was arguing yes, their first vote was 61%. Their second vote was 50%, which I think tells you where this is going to go. The team on the other side uh, arguing no, their first vote was 23%. Their second vote was 42%. So they pulled over 19 percentage points. So I want to say this, however, both sides always pull over people to their side. And the really, uh, our point, our our whole point in doing this is not saying who's right and who's not. We just want to hear the conversation and the argument, and we want to see how you all reacted to it. And we've heard you react to it, and we appreciate that. But more than that, we appreciate that the debaters got here and presented the best arguments that they could. It's clear this argument is not done. We're going to be hearing about it a lot more into the future, and maybe we hope to do some of that on this stage. To all four of you, thank you. To this audience, thank you. I'm John Donvan for Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit that is generously funded by listeners like you, members of Intelligence Squared, academic institutions, and other partners, and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is our head of editorial. Amy Kraft is our chief of staff and head of production. Shail Mara and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Kim Strempel is our production coordinator. Damon Whittemore is our audio producer, and Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Our mission here at Intelligence Squared is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support in that effort. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides, at least both sides, of every issue. I'm John Donvan. Thanks so much for listening. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.